We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 for a good chunk of our time this morning, veering off at different points, uh, but looking at uh, this account of David, young David, and, uh, and, and King Saul. And um, as we dive in here, uh, <laughs> a couple weeks back I read an article about a, a friend I grew up with, a friend I went to high school with, um, and uh, this, this article was from my hometown newspaper, and it was describing uh, how Connecticut Magazine, Connecticut being one of the 50 nifty United States, even one of the 13 original colonies, um, that's a song that we like to sing back home, uh, Connecticut Magazine named him as one of the 40 most successful people under 40 in the state of Connecticut. Um, after selling his first business at the age of 25, he started a beer truck company, uh, which then turned into a food delivery service, which is currently outpacing Uber Eats and other competitors in the surrounding counties. After serving a successful term in local government, uh, he's decided to step away from local politics to continue his degree in business at Harvard Business School, um, where he will then continue to focus um, on expanding his growing company. So, of course, as I read this about my friend, I'm happy for him. I mean, good on him for, for being successful and finding uh, such favor in so many avenues that he's explored. Um, but if I'm completely honest with you, there was something else I felt as I read that article. Uh, and it was this unfounded fear and anxiety even of, oh, no, what if, what if my life isn't that successful? What, what if I don't do anything that that significant um, and, and there's even this other sense of like uh, self-consciousness of, oh, am I, am I as important as him? And all of these feelings, uh, completely unfounded and completely rejecting the idea of uh, what it means to have identity in Christ. And uh, before you judge me for being an awful person, which I am an awful person, um, I have a feeling that what I've just described is probably familiar to you as well. Um, it's envy. It's envy. And uh, it seeks to hijack our worship, rob our joy, leave us perpetually hoping uh, in things that were never made to satisfy us. Um, and, and it causes this, this ongoing, just never-ending downward spiral of anxiety, of fear, of, of grasping at things that we can never attain and, and feeling like somehow we've missed out on something else. Um, so how does envy operate? The thing is, we're far more likely to be envious of those uh, who are most like us, those that are the same stage of life, the same age, same profession. Um, and that's primarily because envy loves to operate in the arena of um, comparison. Right? We compare ourselves to those whom we are most like. And so young moms, they're going to be most susceptible to envy in looking at other young moms and how they're raising their kids and what's going on there in their families. And the same is true for singles, professionals, pastors, retirees, and all of those in between. Right? We, we are most likely to be envious of those that we can actually see ourselves in. Um, and so, for, in my case, for someone who is in ministry, for someone who uh, preaches the gospel, um, it wouldn't make sense for me to be envious of a John Piper or a, a Tim Keller or a, a prominent, famous uh, minister of the gospel because they're worlds apart from where I am. Like, I, 
I'm not even in the same arena as them in terms of experience, intellect, platform, you name it. Uh, but the guy that I graduated Bible college with, who was right there with me in class, and after Bible college, he gets a great uh, opportunity at a really thriving church or ministry, or maybe he's just slightly better at preaching, or maybe a lot better at preaching, um, or there's just certain opportunities that he got that I didn't get. That guy, well, he's prime target for my sinful heart to latch on and, and secretly kind of wish, man, is there a way that I can one-up him or, or be uh, in, a, in a place of esteem over him? In his contribution to the book Killjoys, The Seven Deadly Sins, uh, author Joe Rigney writes, We often lump jealousy and envy together, but there's an important distinction. Jealousy is oriented towards what we possess. Envy is oriented towards the possessions of others. We are jealous of what we do not have, but we are envious of what others have. Covetousness wants what the other guy has. Envy is angry that the other guy has it. Covetousness is oriented towards your neighbor's possessions, envy towards the man himself. And this is what makes envy so destructive. It seeks to tear at the fabric of what Christ has built, specifically the unity and reconciliation bought by the blood of Christ. It's tempting us to look inward for, the purpose, for our purpose and our identity, uh, rather than to the one who gives us true and lasting peace in his finished work. It cuts at the very fiber of unity because it wishes for and even plots towards another's misfortune. Think about it. It's the stinging resentment that creeps in when a friend receives a promotion or their status goes from single to in a relationship. Uh, and it's also that rising feeling of delight even when the same friend experiences a breakup or financial hardship or anything else that would raise our status in comparison to theirs. Proverbs 14.30 warns of envy's end result. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Oh, that there would be no rotting bones in the former valley that God has breathed life into by His Spirit. For our purposes this morning, I, I want to show you from the Word why envy is incompatible with the life of a follower of Jesus. And that, in fact, the remedy for ridding our hearts and our minds of envy is to be reminded of truths that are ancient but never grow old because they're truths wrapped in a hope that will never end. And so, as I was praying for our time this morning, I prayed that God, by His Spirit, would illuminate us to the truth of Proverbs 23. It says, Let not your heart envy sinners. Don't envy your fellow man, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future. There is a future and your hope will not be cut off. And so I just pray that this morning we would, we would combat that inclination to envy with the promises that await us in the world that we cannot yet see. And so as as we dive in, I want to set up the passage here. In 1 Samuel 18, we find King Saul, and he's on a downward spiral. Um, he is so focused on his earthly empire and what he's building for his glory, uh, and he's, he's so focused on his selfish ambition 
that we learn in the chapters leading up to this, that though he once had the favor of the Lord, um, it's been lost as a result of disobedience, not honoring, not doing what God has called him to do. And so he's pursuing his own glory above God's. And, and at this point, he's established a pattern of self-preservation where he's, he himself, as king, he's envious of young, successful warriors. And so what does he do? He keeps his enemies closer, so to speak, and he, he takes them into his household. He takes them from their families, from their influence, and he surrounds himself with these young, successful guys, and he controls every aspect of where they go and what they do. Um, and then the Lord's hand of favor, we've already seen, is being removed from Saul, and it's being placed on, instead on a young shepherd boy named David, whom the prophet Samuel has already anointed as king. And he's just defeated the giant Goliath, and now Saul, not being able to see past his own desire for an earthly kingdom, um, to see that God is establishing something so much more glorious and so much more lasting, uh, he is so nearsighted in his envy that it's going to cause him some great sorrow and disappointment. So pick up with me in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18. It says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. On some level, you've got to feel for the guy, right? He's, he's the king. But now, all of a sudden... They come home from the spoils of war and all the fair maidens of the land. They're coming out and they're singing the praises, not of the king, but of this nobody, this shepherd boy. And Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, striking down ten thousands of people doesn't necessarily translate into today's verbiage. It's not like we're going to say, hey, no fair. They're ascribing way more killings to that guy over there than to me. <laughs> But what about likes, or follows, or retweets? See, it would be impossible to talk about envy today without addressing some of the dynamics that are now present as a result of social media in the digital age. And this is where this is going to get highly practical for us. Notice how Saul immediately fixates on the number they ascribe to David without even acknowledging that they paid him a compliment in there as well. The thing about envy is that it doesn't always operate in reality. Theologian Brad Littlejohn puts it this way, and as I read this, see if this sounds familiar at all to you and your circumstances. He says, Envy is not really provoked by another person's good so much as another person's perceived good. It doesn't really matter whether your friend is actually richer or better looking than you, only that you can imagine them so. And of course, envy always has a fertile imagination. The grass is always greener on the other side. But again, our modern social media makes its job easier by widening the gap between perception and reality. The digital world affords us wonderful opportunities to curate our self-presentation, sharing only our happiest, wittiest, best-looking moments with the world. 
This results in a situation where almost anyone can look around on Facebook and plausibly conclude that everyone else is having a better life. Sometimes we are even self-aware and malicious enough to use this power of social media to deliberately stoke envy, to present ourselves or our achievements in such a way as we know will make others feel inferior. Does that sound familiar? Can you relate to that at all? I know that I can. See, part of what it means to be image bearers is that we are creators and curators of content, seeking to use them to tell the best story of our life. Social media allows us to project ourselves in ways previously unimaginable, oftentimes in ways that are unrealistic or, at the very least, incomplete. An example of this, um, a couple of autumns ago, in the autumn of 2016, just before our family moved here from the States, we had the opportunity to go to Disney. So we took our then almost three-year-old at the time to Disney, and um, <laughs> I remember she was wearing her Rapunzel dress, and she was so excited, and we went around Epcot that day, and it was beautiful weather, and she met Anna and Elsa, and there was just so many opportunities uh, to take some photos of just this great experience that we had. And as a parent, I mean, it was exactly what you want, right? Like, your kid is as happy, as excited. It's exactly what they wanted to have happen. And so, of course, we posted pictures of our trip to Disney. But you know what we didn't post <laughs> is what happened a couple hours later as we were leaving the park, as we got on the tram, and all of a sudden the heat from that day and all of the food that she consumed and the movement of the tram caused whatever was inside her little stomach to now well up and her face turns green. <laughs> and all we could do is watch helplessly in horror and, and everyone else around us sitting next to us as the three-year-old began spewing. And, and we, all we had was a, a little cooler, and so we were just trying to catch what we can and not get it on strangers. I didn't post pictures of that. That would have been the whole picture, right? But we only post what we want people to see. And people only post of their lives what they want us to see. The lie of envy stokes this phenomenon of FOMO. Have you guys heard of FOMO? It's the fear of missing out. It says, I have this life and this life alone, and if I'm not the most attractive of all my friends, or if my kids aren't the most accomplished, or if my house isn't the poshest or my car the sleekest, then somehow I've failed. But envy is incompatible with the life of a believer. Because at the point of regeneration, the story we as redeemed image bearers are longing to tell, it's no longer our own story, but God's. Just as the glory we seek is no longer our own, but God's. The push of our life is no longer the struggle to project to others the saga of who we want them to think that we are, but to display the message of who God is in the bloody atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and all that He has accomplished to bridge this gap between lowly sinners and glorious King. That's the story that we're meant to tell. And so the question begs to be asked, particularly with the way we use social media. Whose story are we telling? Colossians 3 reminds us of the greater story that we were meant to tell. It says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds 
on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, envy over-promises, and it under-delivers every single time, especially in the realm of our physical presentation. See, we, we as a culture, we spend countless time, energy, resources to try and stem the tides of time with aging creams, cosmetic surgery, diet and exercise programs, clothes, perfume, jewelry, which in and of themselves are all fine and good. But the problem is we become perpetually concerned about how we look, and yet each of us, barring the Lord's return, will go to our graves no better off than if we hadn't fussed about any of it at all forgetting that we will one day have bodies that are far too glorious for this present age. Paul tells us this much in Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Can I just tell you that when you get to heaven, you're not going to have a bad side of which you have to be self-conscious of in photographs. Would it not change the way that we view and treat one another if we saw each other not in terms of hot or not or fit or fat, but as eternal beings who will one day be perfect in every way with no end in sight? I love the way C.S. Lewis contemplates this reality in his series of lectures entitled The Weight of Glory. He says, When all the suns and nebula have passed away, each one of you will still be alive. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. He goes on to say, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Think about this for a moment. Think of the ugliest person, the most interesting looking person that you can think of. No names, please. Just keep it in your head. But if they were a follower of Jesus and they were to somehow prematurely enter into their glorified state and then walk the streets of Glasgow, they would be so beautiful to you. They would be so glorious. You would be tempted to fall down and worship them. If that's the reality and we have a future of that magnitude for all of eternity with Christ, then we can be free from the bondage of comparing our physical bodies with those of others. We can get on with this glorious work of loving and serving one another as fellow heirs of the King.
Let's pick back up in our text. Unfortunately, as a result of Saul's envy, things get a whole lot worse for everybody. We read on that in the, the next day, Saul gets worked up into a fit of rage, and uh, he actually, his envy is just boiling over, and David's there in his household. He's he called him into his house, and he's playing the harp, and he just gets so filled with envy, it just overwhelms him, and he throws a spear at him, not once, but twice. Like, he just wants to kill him. He can't stand the sight of him. And then goes on to, in verse 12 to say, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. We see twice in this passage that envy causes Saul to be afraid of David. It says he's afraid because the Lord was with David. In actuality, Saul is envious that David has something that he doesn't have, and it's namely the presence of the Lord. And while certainly any of us should be covet, should covet the presence of the Lord, we should desire that, we should want that, it wasn't ultimately the presence of the Lord that Saul's heart was after, but rather the presence of the Lord was a means to an end for Saul. Because the presence of the Lord meant that his kingdom would, his kingdom, Saul's kingdom would prosper. And so he wanted the presence of the Lord as a means to his end. The story goes on to describe how Saul's fear leads him to do some pretty desperate things. He offers his daughters one after another to David uh, in an, an attempt that he will be killed in battle trying to secure the bride price for them, or at least be ensnared in some other way. But when David returns from battle with twice the number of foreskins required, that's a side story we don't have time to discuss this morning, uh, we see that Saul's envy and fear lead to only more envy and fear. Do you see this in verse 28? Read this with me. It says, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. There's a lesson there for us. Envy and fear, they go hand in hand. They whisper the lie that says this life is our only shot at greatness. And so we too can end up doing things that are just as desperate and just as destructive to amass wealth and possessions. We consume ourselves with overspending on purchases that never seem to deliver on the satisfaction they promise. Or we'll even go into debt attempting to keep up with everyone else. And before we've even paid off whatever it is that we went into debt to get, there's something newer and shinier that's caught our eye. And the other thing, we've already come off it. And so it's this perpetual downward spiral, spiral of always grasping, always longing for something that we can't quite have in this life. But have we forgotten who our Father is? For Psalm 50 Verses 10 through 12 tells us, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And what's more, because of Jesus, all the wealth in this world 
is chump change compared to the glory that awaits those who trust in him. Peter reminds us of this reality in the opening lines of his first epistle. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, taking God at his word, it frees us from this momentary grind we subject ourselves to. And it releases us into something so much richer. If, in fact, we are partakers in the judgment of the world and heirs of the eternal kingdom, if all that God has is ours, then why would we not rejoice in the abundant blessings of others? God is our Father. He loves us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing that he could want that he doesn't already have and possess. And he calls us his children. He welcomes us in to his kingdom and into his inheritance. If that's the case, then what does it matter what they have, what they get, the opportunities that we didn't experience? You know, it's almost like this is not an, a completely perfect analogy. There, there really aren't any. But you think about it. When we envy things that other people have, when we see them getting success or possessions, whatever it is that we feel like we want or we're entitled to, and yet God's offering that in eternity. You know, the, the royal wedding a couple months ago, they, they released the... <laughs> the menu for what was on that thing. It was stuff I couldn't pronounce. It was probably food that was too tasty for my taste buds. Um, but can you just imagine, you're invited to Harry and, and Meghan Markle's wedding. You, you have this exclusive invitation to this glorious royal banquet. And the, the day before the wedding, you're at Costco, and someone else gets the last free sample of fried chicken. Like, you're going to throw your hands up and go, why, why did they get that? And you forget, what, what do you have to look forward to tomorrow? Something so much, they can't even comprehend it. And here you are upset over a piece of fried chicken. That's kind of what it's like. As we're walking this life, as we're living life, and we're seeing all these things, and people are having all these opportunities, and we can become so overwhelmed and anxious, but God promises us something so much more glorious if we would just look beyond this unnecessary rat race we find ourselves in. Up to this point, we focused on Saul's response to David's anointing. But there's someone else in the story who, earthly speaking, <laughs> he should be right there with Saul and his feelings of envy and hatred towards all that God is bestowing on David. Jonathan, as Saul's son, was next in line to his earthly throne. And as much as all that his father had to, to lose, he stood to lose because of David's new anointing. He stood to lose it as well. And yet, this is what we see in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It says, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Skip down to verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Think about that for a moment. 
the heir apparent to the throne. He sees that God's plan no longer involves his family at the center of it. And rather than being envious or afraid, he stares across at the very man whom the keys of the kingdom are being given, and and he willingly, gladly celebrates what God is doing by handing over his armor, handing over his robe. These are the very signs of his former royalty. Just here, have it. You can have all of it. Later, we read in chapter 23, verses 16 through 17, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God, and said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. From where does Jonathan get this kind of boldness and freedom? See, although Jonathan had a very powerful earthly father, he had an infinitely more powerful heavenly father. And his allegiance to the eternal purposes of God superseded his allegiance to his father's temporal throne. Jonathan recognized that if God was his father in heaven, there was nothing on this earth worth comparing to the inheritance that awaited him. And so he freely, willingly gives all of it to David and rejoices in the eternal God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills because his reward isn't here in this moment on this earth. It's in heaven with Christ. In fact, the same spirit that was at work in Jonathan allowing him to have these eternal eyes is the same spirit that resides in you this morning if you have placed faith in Jesus. Romans 8, 15 tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. At its rate, uh, at its root, envy is terrified of a second-rate existence or infinite irrelevance. But the presence of those realities is rendered impossible when Jesus enters into the equation. He frees us to see with eternity's eyes beyond the confusion and the false urgency that's introduced by comparing ourselves to those around us so that we can now live the way that we were meant to live and leverage our talents, our possessions, our places of influence for the things that matter, for the things that leave a lasting impact into eternity and to be a blessing to the souls that God has placed us around. There's so much more than just the here and now. And when we are living for what's beyond the here and now, what we'll find is that our lives here and now, they'll count. And they might not look as polished as an Instagram feed, but they'll be far longer lasting and they'll be far more satisfying. You want to beat envy? You want to break loose these shackles of fear and comparison? You want to actually step into gratitude 
not only what, for what God has given you, but actually being able to have true gratitude when God blesses those that are like you but not you. Remember who you are and remember who you will be a billion years from this moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the life that we have in you, for the promises of eternity that we have with you, that eternity is what it is because you are God and you will be there with us and that we will get to be face-to-face with the one who shed his blood. And God, we, we confess that our hearts are prone to envy, to, to look for and long for things that you give to other people that we don't have a claim to. And so we ask for your forgiveness and your grace for the times that we, we do that and the, the times we allow our hearts to settle in that way. And God, we thank you for the reminder that you give us in your word that there are blessings and there is hope and there is a a joy and a kingdom that we have to partake in that we can't even begin to fathom how good it is. And so God, I pray that you would just fill our hearts with gratitude. Gratitude for what we have in the here and now. Gratitude for what others have in the here and now. But ultimately that we would have gratitude that our lives can count for eternity because of who you are and because we get to be with you. And so we praise you. We give you honor and glory. And we ask you to come and and disrupt the things in our hearts and our minds that need to be disrupted so that we can enter into a deeper fullness of what it means to be content and to have our identity and our hope and peace with our fellow man because of who we are in you. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.